0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 27th of March 2019. The topic is Science of the Mind Body Connection. On the panel we have Uta Volmer Connor, Associate Professor at the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, Dr. Marianne O'Donnell, Consultant Psychiatrist at the Prince of Wales Hospital, Michaela Pascoe, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Victoria University and Jamie, our lived experience representative for this evening. Chairing this session, we have Dr. Bered Gordon.
1: So I thought it might be useful for us just to kind of lay down some foundations from which we can go forward with the discussion. So Michaela, I might start with you actually and talking a little bit about the stress response for people who perhaps are less um, familiar, could you take us a little bit through um, what is the stress response, what do people experience, what's going Mm -hmm. on in the body um, during the stress response?
2: We all experience stress from one time or another and our body is very good at um, helping us essentially survive that stress. So if we're crossing the road, for example, and a car is coming towards us at high speed, um, the autonomic nervous system Results in a number of changes in our body, such as changes in blood pressure and heart rate, um, in order to essentially help us fight or flight from that particular stressor. This happens so quickly that you're not even aware of it. It means that's the reason you can sort of jump out of the way of the car before you can even really acknowledge what's going on or what's happened. Um, and then the corresponding part of the autonomic nervous system, the other branch, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, Um, that is responsible for then returning the body to this sort of um, restful state afterwards. There's another aspect of this um, stress response in the case of when there might be an ongoing stressor. Um, Maybe you're being chased by a tiger, which I guess doesn't happen so much, but historically it may have happened a little bit more. And the body needs to be able to sort of maintain this level of... um, I guess, response or um, it needs to have energy available in order to help us remove ourselves from that threat. So then another part of um, the body called the HPA axis, that results in downstream or a whole lot of sort of hormonal changes. And one of those is changes in cortisol, which is one particular one I want to highlight because it comes up a lot when we're talking about um, depression and uh, mood and stress. Um, and this is very important because it helps uh, essentially um, a whole lot of functions. One of those is uh, maintaining levels of um, uh, blood glu- uh, glucose in the blood so, or uh, releasing glucose from the liver so that we can have energy available to help us sort of remove ourselves, I guess. Um, there are some, uh, once this cortisol reaches a certain level in the blood, there's a feedback mechanism that goes back to the brain that then says, okay, that's, we're out of danger now, we can stop producing all of this um, cortisol or these hormonal changes and the body can then return to this sort of restful state again. Um, When we have ongoing stresses, there can be some disruption to that system, but I think that maybe I'll just leave it there for now and we might sort of loop back to that a little bit later on.
1: Thank you. It's so I might actually skip to you, Uten, now maybe in more depth. Can you talk to us about the autonomic nervous system? What is it? What are we talking about? Give us a bit of an understanding about what that term means.
3: Right. I, I think, you know, you've already explained
4: about
1: the fright. But
4: I, I would always say the autonomic nervous system is the most underappreciated kind of uh, friend that we have and I'm gratified. I see some people nodding there. <laughs> because it's it's doing its job automatically if you like. I think the Germans even call it the automatic nervous system and you know, you don't think about when to take a breath or whether your heart beats or whether it doesn't or whether you should sweat when it's hot or whatever. It just happens. And we just take all that for granted that it happens. But if we wouldn't have the autonomic nervous system, would we all be dead? So And the, uh, so we should appreciate it a little bit more, but really the uh, neuroendocrine axis is a very slow response system. That is no doubt important as well, but I'm more interested in the very fast signaling, and that is the autonomic nervous system. So we're knowing there is uh, two branches, the sympathetic one, which is the action one, fright flight, but I think we should also be very mindful that stressors are not just out there like the cyber-toothed tiger or the car or whatever. There are also stressors inside within us. So if you have an infection or if you have an inflammation or you have an injury or anything like that, that also is a stressor for the system. And that also engages the flight response. And of course, the other underappreciated friend is the gentle brother of the sympathetic arm, and that's the parasympathetic one, with the longest arm in the body called the vagus nerve. And this is truly an amazing nerve, because it does, as we now know, like when I studied, you know, which is probably a bit in the dark ages, but when I studied, the autonomic nervous system was considered a reflexive system. Probably some of you were taught similarly. So that you know, it does this automatic action, it does this in a reflex loop via the brainstem, maybe the midbrain, that's it. But we now know that information from every single micro environment in the body has vagus nerve fibers, so autonomic fibers, and that gets transported to the brain, not just to the brainstem, but to the limbic areas and to the prefrontal cortex. And there, it's integrated into the physiological state of the body. So the brain has a blow-by-blow insight on what is actually happening here with me. So really, the autonomic nervous system, we now know, informs the brain about exactly what's happening in your body, immunologically, any other sort of neuroendocrine system, and in return, because it gets it gets um, processed so high up to the prefrontal cortex, it then affects self-regulation and ad- adaptation. So it changes our feelings, and it changes our motivated behaviours, you know, depending on what the... And sometimes you might think, why am I feeling so off? And that is exactly... It be <laughs> if there's no external reason for that. And that. But when we're sick, our mood changes, right? Our ability to concentrate changes, our need for sleep changes. And these are all things that happen in your brain, right? Even fever happens in your brain in response to a bug or a microorganism in your body. And that is a, a fine example... It's called the acute sickness response on how your body and your mind are actually linked.
1: So, following on from that, I might actually skip to Jamie for a moment. Um, you mentioned having had bouts of depression from a younger age, and but I remember in our conversation you said the the one bout that was particularly severe. There was a real lead up of stress towards that. Can you tell us, like, from your perspective? How did stress you know, contribute to the depression and how did you experience the stress, just thinking about what that was like for you?
5: Uh, correct, yes. Stress was, um, was was a very stressful time in, in my life back in 2012. Um, my marriage uh, dissolved and I was living in uh, Queensland at the time and I came back having to – basically having to, um, to reset my life and start again and um, arrange the sale of a home and go through all those usual stresses. So. Um, I returned and began that process and I had to start my business up again. Um, Everything was pretty much from scratch and I'd been away for a couple of years so um, my social network, my support network wasn't necessarily there as well. So I guess I created a bit of a perfect storm for myself. I gave myself a few challenges, let's say. um, However, um, it is what it is and I was just, um, I just head down and bum up to uh, to try and establish myself again. Um, During that process about, uh, a few weeks into that process, uh, the, the, house, the sale of the house was going through and as I was getting ready, uh, the final tidying up, the, the day was to move out, uh, I could vi- virtually um, uh, see that dark cloud descending upon me out of nowhere and I could almost put it to the time as well. Um, so I guess the culmination of all those stresses finally came came to a head in, uh, in one fell swoop and it just sort of fell in the heap from there. Um, so I, I, I began my usual, and it was, it hasn't, it was the most severe um, that I'd been through um, about um, over my experiences. Um, so however, a few of my uh, previous um, uh, ways of dealing, my few um, few strategies that uh, I'd been through before or used before kicked in. So of course I went off to my GP and uh, made an initial consultation to be able to to sort of, um, I, I guess, begin the initial process and uh, take it from there. But I found myself in a, in a, bit, in a bit of a spin and um, when you're in that, in that state, you uh, to make logical, rational decisions is extremely difficult. Um, however, so um, once I saw the GP and, and told my family what was going on, um, uh, I took it from there. About um, two weeks after, after that, I was on some um, medication, uh, the illness and um, I started getting sick one night. Um, uh, I thought it was the flu coming on, so I started getting hot flushes and uh, temperatures rising and um, I didn't know what. I thought, oh, okay, well, it's not much fun. No, it is winter um, and I just thought it was bad of the flu. However, later through that night, things deteriorated and I ended up um, stumbling. I couldn't make it to the bathroom. I was bouncing off walls. I was just uh, hallucinating. Uh, fortunately, I was staying with my brother at the time, and um, he whisked me off to hospital. Um, and it eventually bit was diagnosed as aseptic cephalitis, which was um, um, uh, wasn't in, it was induced. It wasn't a bacterial or viral infection. Um, so I spent the next couple of weeks in um, in hospital trying to fight this. And um, so I had the basically the two to put up with. So. Um, uh, however, uh, it did give me a lot of time, uh, as unfortunate as it was, it gave me a lot of time to think and uh, to work out what I was going to do from there, working on my physical recovery as well as my mental uh, mental state as well.
1: I might just now check in with you, Marianne. The microbiome, it is a buzzword at the moment, but um, let's just check yeah, everybody yeah, understands.
5: My
3: sort of brain uh, happy zone and now into the world, of the real world of the microbiome. But I think that what I've had to come to terms with Um, We've all vaguely known it forever, but we live and are embedded in a microbial world. Um, We like to think that we're sort of significant, but actually we're nothing compared to the (laughs) amount of microorganisms that there are in the world. Um, They're everywhere, aren't they? They're bound in the soil, the oceans, the sea. Um, They are on every creature and animal, and they are all over us, inside of us, from the beginning of our gut to the bottom of our gut, every single core and zone that we um, have, they're there. So this has introduced a whole new uh, way of thinking, I think, for uh, many people. Um, In fact, these trillions of of creatures, they include the bacteria, viruses, fungi... um, There's more of those than there are human cells in our body on us as each of us as individuals. I think it was always thought in the gut that they were um, sort of friends, they were there to sort of maybe they did a bit help you with digestion a bit, they gobbled up a few of those nasty sort of nasty big fibre things or something. And I think we've always thought that, well, maybe they play a role in things like irritable bowel syndrome and those sorts of things. And, um, but what has become increasingly clear now is that those little bacterial commensals down there are signalling to the brain. Uh, Uta's mentioned a bit about um, signals and things, and, uh, but it's now got to that point where it's understanding that the bacteria and other things themselves are putting out the signals, and they're doing that through a variety of mechanisms. Um, the immune system actually is a big one, and there's lots of pathways there, and we can always rely on order to help clarify those pathways as the evening goes on, if one, people want to know. Another way that they uh, can affect uh, things is through the barriers um, that normally exist. So, in the intestinal sort of wall, it's normally a, you know, we see it as a tight little barrier, and there's, you know, the intestine and the lumen, and outside of the blood vessels and, and the, you know, the nerves, the vagus, etc. But in fact, that's a very permeable membrane, really, and there's lots of ways that um, things, metabolites, can be released by these little biome to open up those little junctions and potentially make for a leaky sort of permeable situation. And um, uh, they um, signal um, to, uh, through hormone, they can do hormone secretions as well, and they have metabolites themselves, the bacteria. We're going to focus on the bacteria because it's too hard to even think about viruses and fungi in this situation. I think they're a little bit neglected at the moment. But but the bacteria make these short-chain fatty acids and things that can do these types of things in terms of breaking up junctions. And Uta already alluded to the uh, the wonderful and very famous vagus nerve. Well, it wasn't really as famous as it should be. I remember as as a medical student... You know, the wandering fabulous vagus nerve, you know, describes a curve around the hyoglossus and does all this sort of stuff. But um, recently I went back to have a look at it um, sort of in my old anatomy books and just this incredible shower of sort of nerve endings and things. So right down, you know, from the brain, right down through the, you know, cranial nerves, into your chest, respiratory, cardiac, and then all of the gut up to the... um, I think the left um, splenic flexure or the descending colon, I think all of the small intestine, all of the stomach, um, everywhere, and this massive sort of nerve is just innervating all of this and dividing into branches and touching base with every single part of that and wrapped in there is your autonomic nervous system, I think as well as everything else. I mean, And the communication pathways, they're intimate, they're right there, blood, nerves and organs um, So um, what's got exciting and why I think there is this big excitement about the biome now that wasn't there before is that once upon a time you couldn't really put in a petri dish and get these um, microorganisms to grow. Very few things actually really grew, considering what the population is down there. Being anaerobic I think was the problem, but what they've discovered, of course, is a better way of, a um, better form of technology where they can now sequence the DNA of all these little terrors and darlings, as they probably both are. And that so we can now look at the DNA of, of these bacteria. So now it's possible to actually look at the composition, you know, which phyla, which taxa, which sort of colonies they belong to, how many are there, um, what are you, and they're starting to think about. How many do you need to operate in relation to each other? It's not really much point in just thinking about one at a time, though there have been obviously specific sort of things like Helicobacter pylori, sort of the most famous one recently that's completely changed the face of those stress-induced ulcers that people used to get when I was at medical school have now turned into a treatable disease, haven't they? Well, there's a little bit of hope that something like that might happen in other areas, um, Maybe it won't be that straightforward, but maybe it's to do with compositions and panels of uh, microbiota. But what we really know is that it's much more um, likely that these microbiota are playing a real role in our health, not only our physical health, but in our mental health as well. And uh, there was a nice little um, heading on the New York Times um, in January, I think of this year, where it said, germs in your gut are talking to your brain. Scientists want to know what they're saying. And I guess, (laughs) I think that's that's sort of what I think is where um, things are up to with the microbiome.
1: So when people use the term, the gut-brain axis, what are they actually meaning?
3: Well, actually it's changed its name now from the gut-brain axis to the microbiota gut-brain axis. Now I think that's the MGB. Mostly, that was associated with smart sports cars um, that sort of you know to zip around Sydney um, thirty years ago. But um, well, what what is the gut brain axis exactly? Well, it does it, compo- it is composed of this what um, well, refers to this incredible neural, immune, and endocrine neuro uh, connections between the gut and the brain, and that there what it has is these multiple routes of communication between the two. So what it is, is that communication system that's composed of all those things. And we know a couple of sort of things, um, for instance, we know that microbial composition is critical for optimal immune function, um, inflammation intimately involved with it, all sorts of oxidative stress and toxins, all that sort of stuff that you hear through, other forms of um, alternative types of medicine, all these things are implicated in here. And the, 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 the big systems are the vagus nerve is, is the big one, uh, obviously with all the... And it's, the neural messages go up and down all of its tracks and fibres. It's not one way by any means. Um, I mentioned how much of the, the gut and everywhere else it supplies. But it's um, those little biota... Are sending messages through the neural, uh, through the vagus nerve to the brain and activating neuroendocrine control systems and behavioural responses. So that's one way it's doing it, and then it's doing it with the little biota sending off metabolites, so the short chain fatty acids, and that's all part of it, and that's breaking down little junctions in, in sort of brain, uh, both in the, um, the brain. Um, uh, what's called the brain barrier, uh, which was supposed to be once invincible, is now seen as leaky and permeable. And the same with the gut sort of um, um, intestine. And with the inflammatory markers as part of all this as well, with the cytokines and all the other things that are released by immune cells and activate neurons and hormonal cells and, uh, and that. So the, the MGB or the microbiota gut-brain axis involves all those things, it and it's all about how it communicates with the uh, with the brain
1: Utah i might just get you to clarify another thing for us um the autonomic nervous system how does that can relate to the immune system what's the connection yeah between the well two? we
4: could just follow on from marianne's story with the, the gut-brain axis, when it was still called that, it was mostly the vagus nerve. Like the vagus nerve, 80% of the vagus nerve are going up and 20% are going down. And in the gut, like you said so nicely, it's like phenomenal how many fibers are everywhere. And um, a friend of mine did this wonderful study with inducing an infection in the gut that was so slight that the animals, rats, didn't actually feel sick that there was an inflammation, infection going on. And the release of these, uh, these activated immune cells released uh, cytokines and other proteins. The vagus nerve was picking it up. And you could, you know, now technology allows to actually use um, fluorescent antibodies to actually show what's happening. And you could see there was a, like a macrophage lighting up because of the inflammation infection. And that led to the vagus fibers lighting up in green, and they were going all the way up. And even though the animal wasn't febrile and wasn't sick, and systemically you couldn't even see that there was elevation in inflammatory markers, but because it happened in the gut and the vagus nerve picked it up, it let the brain know there is something happening here, like sickness. And the animal's behavior, which they tried out in an open plan you know, like for rats and mice, they pop out of holes and they can explore and whatever. And when they're sick, they don't do that as much. So there was a significant reduction in how happy they were to explore and play from this minor infection in their gut that was translated to the brain. And similarly, with the now the microbiome coming into it in a big way, and this is like the new kit on the block, where if the microbiome composition is not right and is out of whack due to whatever, bad food, antibiotics, that causes an inflammatory response. And that is picked up by the vagus nerve as well. And that will then let the brain know this is not working kind of really well. So there is this almost, and this happens like in split seconds, like where this information is, coming up and down. And it will affect how you feel. And you know, there's probably a particular threshold when you start to feel really bad and thinking, oh, I'm feeling really awful, or whatever it might be. But there is definitely that. And then because the brain, when it gets these messages, it's actually referred to as interoception. It's not just the vagus nerve, there's also sympathetic fibre tracts. He can also pick up messages. And it all goes to quite high centres in the brain that's called interoception. So it's like internal perception. And, and then that, that is sort of interpreted and adjustments are made, like in that animal who then doesn't want to explore. Or like when you come down with the flu and you just don't want to go out, you just want to snuggle up with the hot water bottle or whatever
1: happens. Thank you. And so, Michaela, a lot of your research has looked at sort of activities or practices which may influence um, some of these processes in the body. Can you tell us a little bit particularly about your studies on yoga and how that works psychologically, biologically? What have you discovered in your research?
2: Yeah, um, well, there's many, many different, I guess, areas that it affects and... um, Uh, there wouldn't be space or time to sort of talk about all of those. I've been looking at the relationship um, with stress and stress reactivity, but some of the other things I would like to highlight is sort of some psychological changes that occur when people engage in mindfulness practices. And mindfulness practices or mindfulness is defined as, I guess, paying attention to the present moment from a perspective of non-judgment and acceptance. Um, And that's associated with a whole range of things, one of which is metacognition, which is essentially the ability to observe your thoughts. Um, And the act of, I guess, meditating, for example, if you're paying attention to your breathing, that is engaging in metacognition. It's also engaging in interoception as well. So different meditation practices and yoga practices have been shown to improve uh, interoception. And there's um, actually that corresponds with... um, changes in brain structure and function as well. So uh, one of the other things I would like to highlight is increases in self-compassion, which is essentially how kind we are to ourselves. So I think often in society we're, or, we're a lot more harsh on ourselves than we would be with people that we care about in our lives um, and a lot more self-critical, and that is associated with um, poor outcomes in psychological health and developing higher self-compassion or being a better friend to ourselves is associated with greater resilience. So there's been some studies, for example, from the States where um, soldiers who have returned from war, um, irrespective of what they were exposed to, um, those soldiers who had higher levels of self-compassion had better mental health outcomes. Um so there's a few things going on there. I guess people are developing the ability to listen to what's going on, listen to their emotions, learn to sit with those uncomfortable emotions and not beat themselves up over it about. Um, and all of that, this is something Uta was saying earlier, that the things that cause us stress and can cause a stress response, they're not just out there, they're in they're in our minds as well. And um we can become or have a stress response based on our, our psychology. So it is all very. Nothing's in a vacuum. It's all you know cross talk, and I guess that's what we're talking about here, and what's really coming out as a you know as the theme of tonight. Um, So the um, some of the research essentially is looking at yoga practices and looking at how they can modify some of these markers of stress or physiological markers of stress reactivity. And one of the things we spoke about earlier was um, cortisol. And yoga practices are associated with decreases in baseline or resting cortisol. Having said that, of course, cortisol you know, changes throughout the period of the day. But um, when measured in the morning upon waking, um, cortisol levels, there's changes as a result of engaging in yoga. And that is compared to um, some other sort of active control group, essentially meaning that rather than doing absolutely nothing, if you're engaging in even another form of physical activity, or um, a, say a psychoeducation group or something like that, the, the benefits um, are, still seem to be existing. This is quite preliminary, I guess, in, in terms of the state of this research. So um, this it is, I guess, early day findings. Um, but there has been a lot more research looking at um, the impact of yoga practices on blood pressure and heart rate. And these are some of the things that can be used as a sort of crude measure, I guess, um, of autonomic stress response and um, looking at uh, the, what, I, what, what these studies have been looking at or what I've been looking at as well as resting levels. So this is a little bit different from stress reactivity because there's two things here. One is stress reactivity. How do you respond when something stressful occurs and how quickly can you return to this sort of um, baseline state? And another is what's your sort of basal level? Um, So when people are exposed to ongoing stress, there's changes, it seems, in both of these things. Um, So there's been a lot more, I guess, research looking at resting levels of heart rate and blood pressure, and um, the research indicates that people who are exposed to very high levels or ongoing levels of stress have increases in blood pressure um, and have increases in heart rate, and this, of course, has impacts for a whole of cardiovascular Health outcomes, etc., but it's also associated with uh, mental health outcomes like depression. So, essentially, what we've seen is that um, engaging in yoga practices can decrease stress reactivity, or it appears to decrease stress, um, and this corresponds with people's self reported levels of stress when you say, How stressed are you feeling? Um, and that's also associated with changes in mood or decreases in depress, depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms as well. And um, I guess from my perspective anyway, that ang- depression and anxiety are very much two sides of the same coin.
1: Great. Thank you yeah. for that. And, Jamie, i will just interested in your experience um you became physically very unwell while you were low. Did you find there was an interaction between your physical health and your mental health? Did one impact on the other? Like, how did it play out for you?
5: Oh, abs- absolutely. Um, as I said, lying in hospital, I was um, basically um, bedridden for the best part of two weeks, so obviously my physical health deteriorated. Uh, weight Muscle wastage and fatigue and, um, so, um, um, at the time I wasn't aware of the, the link between them, I always tried to keep myself at a physical job, I always tried to keep myself um, physically healthy and I was uh, liked to move and, and be involved in uh, activities but um, all of a sudden that was all gone um, and uh, leaving hospital um, really um, with all those issues that, that came physically I was just um, just uh, wasted away. So. First of all, um, I really couldn't control my mental state at the time, but I figured that when I was, um, uh, once I was uh, home, that I could, something I could do about it was control my physical condition. So I started with that, um, basically putting one foot in front of the other and trying to lift things and trying to be able to get, uh, trying to build my strength, which is, um, I guess, uh, as I say, it's the only thing I could control at that stage, so I went with that and um, began a... Uh, which wasn't really um, particularly easy because um still in the bouts of depression and um, having all the uh, the thoughts that went along with uh, with that, that condition. Um, finding the motivation was was a, was was a, it wasn't easy. Put it that way, that was the most difficult challenge. But as I said, um, I just I'm I, I, while in hospital, I um, I had a lot of time to think, and I just um, I don't like things getting the better of me, um, so I. I got a bit angry at it, at it all, in my situation, and I, but I used that anger in a positive way, and I decided at the time, I made a decision um, while I was in bed, uh, I was going to fight this, whatever it took. So that's one thing I could physically, I uh, could can I could, I could do when I would start sort of becoming a little bit more active. So I joined up, uh, joined a gym, I dragged myself out of the house, dragged myself down to the gym. Um, but what only that, not only did that get me started moving, um, but it also got me out connected back into the community in a sense, so I was engaging with people, I was engaging, I was talking to the gym manager, I was looking at what other people were doing, I was actually out doing something. Uh, For me that was a a big step, so um, it sort of kicked kicked off and then it sort of led on from there, so the next day the other foot went front and then so on and so on and I just started to build on what was in front of me on that particular day. Uh, And that eventually led me on a path, so um, as, as, as my physical health improved, so did my mental health, um, but it was a journey I really had to discover. I, I had no indication when I, when I was released from uh, from hospital. I, I basically went to anything and went anywhere and to anybody and read anything that, uh, I could get my hands on just to give myself that information. Um, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't look down the track, which was um, was part of the problem. I think it's easy to look down and go, there's no no end in sight, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but one, one, one day at a time. Um, so as yeah as my as my physical health health improved my mental state improved but um, uh, interesting point that Caroline made before about the stresses from outward stresses from from society um, the stigma from society um, the biggest hurdle I found was self sti- stigma uh, it was my own my own criticism on myself how could I be so weak how could I be so pathetic who how, you know, trying to validate my existence for example. Um, and yeah, once I started to get stronger, I felt stronger. I felt more connected to um, to the community, and I was able to validate myself a lot more. Well, I can, I'm, I am good for something. I can, um, and it, it, that, that self belief started to grow with my physical growth, and my mental growth started to to come uh, as a result. So for me, they're just they're one and the same. Um, I couldn't have done one without the other, um, without the physical physical work, and um, I would have just been um, wallowing in self-pity and self-doubt and um, uh, lack of self-worth. It was a real, it was a, it can be a real spiral, but fortunately I was, um, yeah, I was able to get angry at it and use that anger in a positive way instead of um, spiralling back down and um, with support of some wonderful people and some wonderful professionals and friends and family and um, my, own, my own determination, which I don't know where that came from at the time, but it, as I said, it, it just built. Um, it wasn't there all of a sudden, but it just... I guess the more information, knowledge is power, and that's where I, I really where I, I was a thirst. I, I had a thirst for knowledge because I knew without that that um, it was a it w- wasn't going to happen. So um, I was a bit of a sponge and a bit of a pest at times. But um, as I said, I went to anyone spoke anywhere and spoke to anyone and did anything that could give me that information, and um, yeah, it led on from there.
3: I'd like to ask Dr. O'Donnell to comment on the current use of probiotics people buy them all the time and seem to have some benefit. What do you think about that? Look, I think it is a, a hope for the future once we get a better handle or an understanding of what really is the, you know, the healthier compositions of microbiota, the relative balances of how things should be and actually getting some sense of which ones are more pathological perhaps. I think at the moment, that whole world of prebiotics and probiotics, it's its a bit hit and miss, really. It's like most of them are full of one thing or other. And when you think of the numbers of things that are in the bottle compared to what numbers they're dealing with, it's very difficult. So I think it's a hope for the future, but at the moment it's not science-led, it's not science understood. So I think science is at the moment trying to say, Well, now we've really got a bit of a handle on the pathways. We can now see how it's possible. We're starting to get an idea of that. We're not at the point yet where we can really say this is the probiotic you should have. But I think in the future, um, there is really going to be a place for that more precision-based use of psychobiotics. Um, They'll become and you know, they're, they're cheap, they're affordable, if they can be targeted as well, um, they could make a huge difference.
1: A question from our audience. How does viewing an injury or a stroke as a stress, which then elicits a stress response, impact on how we approach managing these?
4: I think also it's in, important to understand when we're looking at the autonomic nervous system and that whole like connection between the body and the mind, that. I mean, from my work with the autonomic nervous system, it's pretty clear that this is almost like a red flag when something's wrong. Like, it's not a specific thing. So, you know, for example, you have, and how shall I explain that best? Like, we have all evolved for sympathetic signalling to be the default. So from, you know, when we were cave people, we had to be able to run when the, bear comes or something, rather than just say, "Mm, I wonder what the best approach is now, and by then you may be dead. So because we have evolved with the sympathetic firing being the default in our system, there needs to be an active inhibition of sympathetic drive for the parasympathetic to come. So they're not simply like you can't make your parasympathetic system go with any intervention. It has to go via the brain deciding that things are okay inhibiting sympathetic system and then the parasympathetic comes up and and anyone who has any injury or uh, you know like the there's a shift towards sympathetic signaling in just about anything that's wrong so you you're probably familiar with that like in depression and stroke and diabetes and schizophrenia in you name it Chronic fatigue syndrome. So whether you have a mental illness or a physical illness or an injury, you're likely to be more swaying towards sympathetic firing. And that affects and that basically tells you there's something wrong here, right? Your brain doesn't scan the system and say, Oh, it's all okay, I can let go. You know, but it's it's actually not okay, something's wrong. Like when people who are not well go to sleep, right? they brain when it scans you know the physiological state of the body and how we're feeling in general doesn't say everything's fine we can let go. So even in sleep with a variety of conditions you you are higher on the sympathetic drive and that affects the depth of sleep and that affects the how um, what's the measures how restful you feel your sleep was and that uh, loads back onto sleep. There's someone nodding, so familiar with that. But, you know, we do work with people who have, it's called hypervigilance during sleep. Like big time example is post-traumatic stress syndrome people. They're, they're you know, hypervigilant. So their brain doesn't think it's okay to relax. And, and they wouldn't also not occur when they do relaxation or yoga or whatever. They would always still be, compared to a, a person who's well, sh- 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 laying towards sympathetic. And basically, during the night, their sleep is not as restful. They have less deep, deep sleep. They don't feel as well. And the, the hope is, probably with your work, that if you teach these people techniques that would allow the system to switch back to more parasympathetic dominance, that, that then kind of they can let go and then they can, you know, sleep better and heal and all of that.
1: Um, I was just wondering, is there a biological basis to why breathing is so pervasive in treatments recommended for people with anxiety? Like you were mentioning yoga and mindfulness and meditation and things like that. I guess breathing is sort of the common
2: physical mechanism in all of those organize, um, all of those sort of things. Um, well, there's a few different origins, I guess, from this. If you talk about meditation from its sort of Eastern, more spiritual-based origins. Um, that wasn't well. I guess at least wasn't framed within the context of sort of a biological response. But um, that is traditionally used as a way to anchor attention. So that would be something that you could focus your attention on, so that the mind is not sort of wandering all about the place. Um, but there are changes in breathing when somebody has um, when somebody has you know a fight-flight response. You have increases in in your respiration and um, the parasympathetic nervous system then helps control or slow down our breathing. So I guess this is, comes back to the telling the brain that it's all okay. There's this hypothesis, I suppose, that through the process of breathing that you can then um, use that as an anchor to sort of tell the brain, yes, I'm okay, which can then help the parasympathetic nervous system to bring the body back to this sort of... Uh, baseline or I guess there's a lot of um, variability and um, nuances and not everybody's the same but something in terms of the anxiety just to back around often or sometimes with some people when they start practicing meditation they actually have an increase in their anxiety symptoms because suddenly they're paying attention to all of these things that make them feel awful Um, and that seems to uh, decrease over time but in those initial stages it can actually be quite uh, distressing for some people.
4: In addition to that, like I've done some research that shows that, you know, it's not... this horses for courses. I don't think you should ever advocate meditations for everyone or yogas for everyone. I've seen some absolute shithouse meditators who who who'd never went away. They couldn't settle. And for them, it was much better to go to the gym or to, to run or to swim in the ocean or to sing, you know, or to do something different. And I think the trick is... For people to find what kind of activity is giving them that sort of like you know inner peace and and and, and but it's a bad thing to advocate that this is the thing to do you know I, I feel yeah, strong.
5: It's 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 such a an individual thing that um, no two two people are the same, no two treatments are the same. So uh, for me, I was um, taking advice that I was given, but I had to work it out, and I found um, being in my own and still, my own mind and being trying to meditate, I found it. Very, I found it very scary um, initially, and then even now when I'm, I'm trying it, I enjoy the end result. But to get there, it, it's like anything; it takes practice. And um, and I was I was my default would be to go out and enact, enact the strategies that would work for me. So for me, a meditation would be to go for a walk up up the hill on a nice sunny day and and have the silence of of, of my surroundings in the bush and with just in, being in nature. So for me, that was sort of my physical meditation in, in a sense. I was able, that was where I found my most pleasure. And, and, yeah, it's a very personal thing in a lot of ways. But um, to be able to um, meditate, I'll, I'll still give it a go, but um, it's not something that I've, I, I still don't feel comfortable with. But I acknowledge the benefits and I do get benefits from it from time to time. But as I said, sort of, you've got to tell it to, uh, to your own uh, circumstance or your own needs, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really important point that I would, yeah, absolutely 100% agree with. And um, I guess that the research shows there's two, a few things here. One is adherence, so if you don't enjoy something, you won't do it, period. Um, and the other thing is that some of the, we actually have just uh, completed a study at the moment where we found that, um, people who self-selected what they were doing, this is looking at depression outcomes, and this was for uh, physical activities, um, cardio, uh, aerobic and um, resistance-based physical activities. People who self-selected the type of uh, intensity and type of exercise had improvements in depression symptoms, whereas people who were prescribed a particular sort of uh, intervention did not have those same benefits. So I think that that aspect, and this comes back to what you were saying before about developing self-efficacy in this sense of I can do this, I've chosen to do this, I want to do it, and when I do it I can feel like, yes, I've done this, this makes... Empowering, feel. Empowering yeah. feeling. yeah. So that, I mean, there's ho- many different aspects to this and it is a horses for courses. There's no one-size-fits-all. Do we feel like at some point we may be able to
1: manipulate the microbiome to have an impact on mental health? Um, things like fecal transplants or is that something that's in the
3: pipeline. Well, actually, there's some very interesting sorts of studies that are starting to appear in that regard. But um, yeah, look, I think I think it's 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 there in the future. I mean, the big issues. Say, one of the issues we have at the moment with um, serious mental illness is the treatment of it, is with antipsychotics, which cause very serious metabolic problems, uh, metabolic syndrome, or just even increased weight, increased appetite, all those sorts of um, things. So one of the things that we're trying to look at is what is the role of the biome in terms of how people metabolise antipsychotics. And there have been some studies that have indicated that um, the microbiota themselves do influence that. Obviously, if we can try and sort out some of those issues, it will make a difference with regard to whether there are particular um, colonies of bacteria or whatever that do, do need to be targeted, or whether it's particular groups or particular ways that they sort of produce metabolites or or what, it can make a huge difference. At the moment, we are going to do that, a study where we're looking at um, first episode people with psychotic illness. Um, and trying to um, do baseline information, uh, take baseline um, fecal samples from them as well as blood, inflammation, other sorts of things too. But um, And then with the introduction of antipsychotics, um, look at what happens to the biota over that three months, look what happens to their metabolic parameters in terms of putting on weight, uh, things like that and um, seeing if we then look at the um, stool samples again at three months and all the inflammatory markers and all those sorts of things. Because the intention really is ultimately, if we can understand that sort of process, then there is the option um, of um, coming in with um, treatments, psychobiotics or whatever, antibiotics. Um, The other thing is with regard to exercise, and the whole mind-body thing. There is a big focus now in mental health about bringing in to our um, early psychosis clinics and now into our more established illness clinics as well, Um, people on long-term antipsychotic medication who, who often have very serious problems, massive weight gain, all sorts of things, bringing in a program we call the KBIM program or keeping the body in mind. And uh, one of our psychiatrists, uh, Dr. Jackie Curtis, has been very involved with the early intervention um, population, where they were so concerned about the fact that these young people, 18, 19, 20, were within weeks of starting antipsychotics. These new second-generation ones have been really very bad in this regard, were putting on kilos, you know, within... um, weeks, in fact, and actually these medications can have a big effect on insulin resistance and um, as well as weight gain. So they brought in a program where they had intensive psychoeducation and exercise physiologists um, and dietitians, really trying to work with these young people to prevent weight gain and found that they were able to do that um, and stop the addition of sort of weight. So with regard to whether we ever get to faecal transplants, um, where faecal transplants are at the moment, as far as I understand, they're mostly still in the areas of um, serious infections. So if, you know, hospital cross infections, clostridium difficile, hideous sort of infection, you know, terrible gastrointestinal tract symptoms can be recurrent. Um, People end up in ICUs sort of dying from you know, hypovolemic shock, all sorts of things. Then in those situations, yes, uh, faecal transplants um, for recurrent um, Clostridium difficile is actually being used at St Vincent's Hospital and I think is has been quite found quite effective. In terms of what's happening in things like mental illness, it's a bit of a way off. Some of the studies, um, so recently there's been a fairly interesting study, if I can try and get it across to you by Zhang et al, um, where they, in a population of patients with schizophrenia, they um, first of all did find that there were different compositions, sort of reduced, less abundant, less diverse, all that sort of stuff between patients and healthy controls. And here a problem is how do you match those patients? Can you really get someone on a similar diet, ethnicity, da 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 There's a lot of things that are hard about this work um, and we're not naive about that. they found the different sort of compositions. Um, they'd also been doing quite a lot of work with animal models. Um, so there's animal models of schizophrenia, a bit hard to really understand exactly how they can say that that's the case. But there are animal models of sort of some behaviours that are so, sort of maybe um, similar, like social withdrawal and other sorts of things, a bit like what you were talking about, Uta. Um, and. What they did was they, and they had a, already found in animal models, um, that one of the neurotransmitter systems that we've been very interested in schizophrenia for a long time is not dopamine. I mean, that's been there forever and it's not giving us enough results, but is glutamate. They found, you can find in an animal model where if you have low glutamate function in the brain, then you have this mouse model of schizophrenia. So what they did was they took from patients with schizophrenia, faecal transplants and put them into a germ-free mice, this a type, well, that's another story, but germ-free mice, and that mice then started exhibiting behaviours like the ones that had low glutamate in their brain. And they could test this out. So what's, there's been other ones where with depressed patients, they have taken faecal transplants from depressed patients and put them into healthy mice. And the mouse is sort of laid on its back and doesn't want to do anything. So they're starting to um, use some of these little experiments to start to try and understand some of the subtleties of the mechanisms and pathways. So FMT, faecal microbiota transplant, is <laughs> is real and happening, and um, but it's not happening in the clinics at the moment. It's not happening um, anywhere that's sort of helping us. But five or 10 years down the track, who knows?
1: So, which I might check with you. There are a lot of conditions that seem to correlate with depression, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So there seem to be perhaps common underpinnings to some of those conditions. Is that connected to the autonomic nervous <laughs> system, or how does that all work? What's your thought on that?
4: It's probably not just the autonomic. I think the autonomic nervous system, like I said, is like a red flag that is up whatever is wrong with you. I think. But we did um, a study on um, post heart attack depression once, that was actually an interesting paper we had to write on the shared um, neurotransmitters and neuroendocrine sort of molecules between the brain and, and the cardiovascular system which I didn't really know and I felt like a student again. I was spending months for Gordon writing this article and it is phenomenal how many neurotransmitters and neuropeptides and whatever that function in the brain also function in the body. And so the communality often between physical illness and mental you know, illness as such comes often from the interaction of all of those. I mean, they share the brain now, we know so much how the brain shares so many messenger molecules with other body systems. So if one is bad, it's almost like, you know, there is a cycle. It's quite more than like, and I mean, most people who have, autoimmune disease or any sort of inflammatory condition, they're more than likely to also have mood disorder and depression, you know, same as, um, I mean, diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And I mean, really heart disease has that in common as well. It's an inflammatory condition. And uh, and so that kind of feeds back to the brain. Wire. So inflammation is something we haven't talked about in this, but really in the terms of psychoneuroimmunology, you know, when the immune system gets activated whichever way, you know, whether it's by infection or the microbiome being off a bit, or whatever, you know, that signals to the brain, and that can cause in, in vulnerable people especially can cause depression. I mean we did a study with hundreds of people with depression following heart attack and it's very interesting how, you know, off the like when you wanted to see what makes those people with heart attack end up with depression, is there a common thing? But I mean people have many resilience factors, you know, and you can't there is like people have just as bad a heart attack and just as much inflammation and a certain proportion gets they're terribly depressed and other, and other people don't. And so you can never, like you were saying that so nicely, like, you know, you can't say this is what goes for everyone because, um, yes, it's a mechanism that inflammation can cause depression, but it's not always the case. And so there is usually more, more factors than just one, really.
5: Why does cortisol have a negative connotation in the clinical field? Why are the people always trying lower it?
2: I would guess that it had um, something to do with its relationship with uh, maybe the impact it has on the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So when cortisol levels are persistently very high, they can um, cause or they are associated with um, damage to the hippocampus and to the prefrontal cortex. And of course, I mean, the hippocampus is very important when it comes to the regulation of mood and emotion. Um, So that's been, I guess, a a hypothesis in terms of the link between cortisol and depression is that cortisol can damage brain regions that are very important for our regulation of mood, which can then cause problems um, with depression. And people with depression have uh, smaller hippocampi, uh, hippocampi, I think. uh, So the the volume is smaller. Um, And the other thing as well is that... In terms of the HPA axis, when there is uh, higher levels of cortisol persistently over time, um, the HPA axis or becomes desensitized. So it takes a greater amount of cortisol in order for the brain to say, "Okay, we're good now. We're not under threat. We can stop producing more cortisol and more of a, and these other hormonal changes that occur as well." Um, so I would say that it's probably the re- that sort of relationship that it's in can have on brain structures Um, but I guess it is a little bit of an unfair rep because of course cortisol is both good and bad and I guess and and this is probably the point is uh, what we're aiming for is some sort of homeostasis nothing we have we've not evolved in a way to be maladaptive it's just that um, everything benefits us but it's like there, there's this the sweet point and once we sort of disrupt that homeostatic balance, then we can start having some issues.
5: You made a comment about the connection between, say, uh, trauma and later illnesses, um, chronic illnesses in later life. And I'm thinking of complex trauma, so like early childhood abuse. There's a strong connection, isn't there, between... <laughs> the incidence of that and then later development of of diseases in the same person. Now is that the microbiome we're talking about or something more complex?
1: I've done
4: a bit of work actually just recently on childhood trauma and how that impacts later on. And, and I would say if you have severe childhood trauma and you can see that, I see that like I'm also looking after all our medical students with mental health issues, it can see in those who have been traumatised as children, they are hypervigilant. So what actually happens, you know, I was telling you how we're leaning towards sympathetic signalling like in the, in those two branches. If you experience as a small child significant trauma, then your nervous system actually permanently shifts shifts towards hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. And, and people who have had significant childhood trauma, they are hypervigilant sleepers, they are hypervigilant anything. And, and that's why such a high proportion of people with significant childhood trauma end up with all kinds of mental health issues and, and, and physical issues as well. And we've just measured, even just from a, you know, very well standardized questionnaire, People had childhood trauma in a medical student group of people. They have autonomic hyper-responsivity. They have sleep issues, even autonomic signalling at night. They can't de arouse before they fall to sleep. And these are people who don't actually have a psychiatric history. They just had childhood trauma to a reasonable degree. And as adults, even though they're functioning okay in the world, they're carrying around this burden of having autonomic hypervigilance. They're likely, if this is an ongoing stressor in their life, you know, that they might have some elevated inflammatory markers, maybe their microbiome, if they had lots of infections and stuff.
3: Yeah, and it can, I think I think the big thing is everything is multi-directional. It's, everything it's hangs like, together. So who knows exactly the detail, and it's all, everything sort of ratios, and we don't know where the sweet spot is for so many things. But yeah. I think one of the things in the whole in the brain, you know, like psychiatry, serious mental illness is focused on dopamine, serotonin, GABA. It's like, well, what about the other 40, huh? or yeah. something? Um, yeah. And all the sort of hormones are really neurotransmitters. All the immune cells have got sort of, enkephalins, endorphins, endorphins, um, you know, cortisol, um, ACTH receptors all over them. Everything's got all these things. All. It's amazing, really. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fabulous. But I think we just don't understand. We try. We did a little bit of it. We try and look at it, and then it's 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 a big thing to sort of take on just yourself to try and understand an area. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at the complexity of the, um, you know, of, of animals, creatures and the human being, I think it's it's homeostasis is what we're after.
1: <laughs> so I'm uh, sorry to end this discussion. I know it's, it's very interesting and feel free afterwards to talk to one another. But a great note to end on, really, that everything's connected to everything. <laughs> and that's really our theme for tonight. Uh, so,
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.